Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Neil Proctor. Neil is an actor and his theatre company Lancashire People's Theatre is developing a play about eating disorders in men based on Neil's experience. Neil joins us today to discuss his personal experience and the transition of his various eating disorders and the impact of eating disorder stigma on his recovery. Neil has also had a recent diagnosis of ADHD which has had a huge impact on his illness. Hello Neil. Hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm really good. Excited to do this. Yeah, good. Yeah, it feels like, I feel like I always say this at the start of podcasts, but it feels like it's been a long time. This one, yeah. this one takes some organising. We are both very yeah. people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I think it's, it's been about four months in the offing. Yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, that's good. We're finally sitting down um, yeah. and I'm very excited to have this conversation with you because I think kind of the different elements that you've got, you know, transitioning from different eating disorders and also the impact of your ADHD. I think a lot of people will relate to that. So to hear your story, um, I think will be, you know, very interesting for people. Um, So I wanted to start today, kind of, I know that it's not as easy as just like one, two, three, but um, if you could kind of give us an overview um, of your journey with your eating disorder and that sort of transition between... Um... For those who are listening, if you like things in a beginning, middle and end, you're going to struggle with this. <laughs> um, my eating disorders first became apparent when I was in my mid to late 20s. I'm now 46, um, but I started to become ill around food and body image in my late to mid 20s. I left school at 15. And I became a welder. I was a welder for 10 years and I jacked it all in to become an actor. I also had kids quite young. I had my first son at 19. Um, and I had three kids by the time I was 23, 24. I had three kids in quite quick succession. But I, I hated being a welder. Um, and obviously having kids meant that I needed the money. Um, but at 25, I was made redundant and decided to jack it all in and become an actor. Now, the first year of any performing arts course, any good performing arts course, is about self-exploration. And I went in from a very masculine environment. So welding is very male-dominated, it's very aggressive, it's very assertive. Um, And I went into this lovely touchy-feely industry and I just unravelled. I just couldn't put myself back together fast enough. All the childhood trauma, suffered from quite a bit of uh, physical abuse from my parents, quite a neglectful upbringing. I mean, my mum and dad had a pub, so it wasn't conscious neglect. It was just, they were busy. Um, but yeah, so, and I, I started a relationship with the girl when I was 16, the person I had kids with, and our, our relationship had run its course. It, it had become really toxic, really, really dis- destructive. Um, quite a bit of domestic abuse, controlling and coercive behaviours and stuff like that. Um, 
and as a, as a result of doing this self-reflection within the performing arts course, all this came to the surface and I had no strategies whatsoever because my family are typical, as you can tell from my accent, I'm a northern lad. My family were typical northerners. They just, you know, the attitude to everything is just berate, which means get on with it, crack on, you know. Um, so, yeah, I started um, at the end of the first year it became quite apparent that my marriage was just in dire straits and probably beyond repair. And I started using the restrictive aspects of eating disorders to control. Now, I'd always carried a little bit of weight. Um, when I was working as a welder, I was very active, so I didn't carry a lot of weight. But when I stopped, I put a little bit of weight on. I didn't feel body confident at all. So what I did, I thought to myself, um, if I lose a little bit of weight, my wife will find me attractive again and everything will be okay. So I went on a couple of crazy diets, which we won't go into detail, but we've all done crazy stuff as having eating disorders. But towards the end of the first year, I'd started to lose weight, gone past the healthy stage and gone into being a little bit underweight. My, my ex-wife encouraged me to get a little bit of therapy, which I'd like to think would have been for my support, but it wasn't. It was a, it was a, self-serving interest got a little bit of therapy through um the university and the you, you know she was it was really interesting because i just couldn't i had no vocabulary to talk about my feelings at all i was quite unwell then when the university finished the, the university course finished I, I lived locally i didn't go away to university i, I went traveled over to the next town i just went back into welding my marriage was just awful the summer holiday the four months of summer I basically just didn't eat anything I just starved myself I went back into university in the start of the, the second year and I was I was painfully thin um I'd gone you do a lot of what they call floor workers in performing arts where you roll around on the floor I went back to therapy because I was really really struggling with life at the, at the university and she said you've got all the characteristics of anorexia you're restricting you've lost a lot of weight trying to eat food you really need help and that was a bit of a shock when I was told I had anorexia because I genuinely thought eating disorders were for teenage girls which comes across as a little bit clever and a little bit flippant but that that was my my thinking and I think I think society still thinks that now you know I think it's, it's quite a, a common misconception so yeah, she explained what you know what eating disorders were, how they worked, what what there was. You know, my, my obviously with the restriction, with the weight loss and the BMI, it was quite quite clearly anorexic. It kind of shocked me a little bit, but it didn't jolt me out of out of any behaviours. Uh, I had a six week block of counselling, and at the end of it, she said, "You're going to have to get yourself together because you're very close." She worked at the Priory. She did. She worked at the Priory in Preston. And she did a day of voluntary work at the U plan. I was at U plan studying acting at the University of Central Lancashire. And she said, if you don't get yourself, you know, if you don't take steps, you're going to be coming and staying with me. And I thought, I caught, I, that, that blew my mind. The thought of being away from my kids was just too much. So I, I ate purely, I ate mechanically. I just put the weight on. There was no joy in food. It was just a mechanical process. Um, my marriage broke up 
at the end of the acting course, <laughs> um, we separated. But I had an awareness around my eating disorders. I worked as an actor for a little bit and I had to take a job in the gym because the industry just, the recessions and the inputs just, just destroyed the acting industry. It was just, it was really tough. So I took a job in a gym, which in some ways was a blessing and a curse because I was around a lot of, it was, um, it was a high-end gym. It wasn't like a free weights gym or a leisure centre. It, it was a nice gym. And it was a, a leisure centre as opposed to, sorry, a health club as opposed to a leisure centre. And working in gym was brilliant because I'd be around really interesting information. And because it was a really reputable gym and it was a nice gym, the personal trainers and the fitness coaches were really knowledgeable around nutrition and exercise, mm. which was brilliant. However, my brain, it turns out with the ADHD, I take things as absolutes. So somebody said, you know, I overheard somebody talking about a low-carb diet. That would be me then. I would be absolutely nailed on this low-carb diet. That's it. That's what I need to do. So I then live on all these crazy diets. Um, again, I won't go into too much information because just because of the triggering nature of things. But then working in the fitness industry, because of the nature of the people I work with, they would say, you know, Neil, you train a little bit much. Three hours of training a day is a little bit too much. About 45 minutes is the maximum you should aim for because anything after that is counterproductive. And maybe you shouldn't necessarily try this diet because it's not necessarily good for you. So I had this kind of a weird relationship. The personal trainers really looked out for me. They knew I wasn't well. I had a little bit of therapy, I had some CBT, which helped. Um, they helped me because they set some really rigid parameters. And this is where I'm, I'm going to talk about numbers because they said to me, and it wasn't CBT specifically designed for um, eating disorders, it was just CBT. And what they did, they said to me, I, just, I had no structure around food. I had no, no my, my belief systems and uh, the patterns that I had just not not healthy and not constructive at all <laughs> so they set me a little task of having three meals and four snacks a day which absolutely terrified me the thought of having three meals and four snacks a day was just far too much I, I, I don't I don't I didn't really do you know I've never had a panic attack I don't I didn't consider myself an anxious person but that really caused a great deal of anxiety to, to have something like that it just just terrified me and if you break it down, three meals and four snacks a day is not much. It's just, it's just normal. I don't like using the word normal, but it's what it, it, it's, it's usual for people to have breakfast, lunch, dinner, or if you're annoyed, then a breakfast, dinner, and tea, and then little snacks throughout the course of the day. A snack might be an orange, but for me, that was an overwhelming amount of food. Um, and he also said to have to start off with breakfast have a breakfast as soon as you get up try and get some kind of breakfast inside you which again was terrifying because my patterns were very very different to that I'd, I'd restrict throughout the course of the day over the course of the working week and then at weekends my body would just go nuts and then I'd just have a, a massive binge but in, in my time I've had obviously been anorexic I've had non-specified eating disorders I've had bulimia, which it, it, I always thought quite arrogantly 
was quite proud that I'd never been bulimic when I, because I had high degree of awareness around my eating disorders. I knew what I was doing wasn't well, but I was, wasn't good, healthy, but I was so the eating disorder weaved in and out of me so much. I didn't know where I started and it began, but yeah. So and, um, I knew, I, and like I said, I knew I was anorexic because I was just restricting and I'm weight. I had no idea I was practicing bulimia because I always thought bulimia was, you know, um, eating a lot and then making yourself sick um, or having laxatives and purging in that kind of way. Turns out through the therapy I, I had when I was 40 that my bulimic episodes would be with spicy food. So I'd just eat ridiculously spicy food. I'd have a massive binge, but I'd have... No, I'm not going to say the tricks and techniques that I use, but I'd have a lot of, lot of, lot of very um, purge-inducing stuff in my in my binge and then that would all come out and it had it had a laxative effect and the last the last one I've probably had a little bit of orthorexia as well with working in the gym so the super clean diets which is when you work in the fitness industry there's this almost toxic mentality of embracing that kind of super clean eating I'm personally not a massive fan of it now I'm out of that stage of my life but the um yeah, the 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 focus, the 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 celebration of super clean eating in the fitness industry is quite toxic and really unhealthy. And that really didn't help me when I was working there. And then the the toughest one that I had to shake was binge eating disorder. That was a real bastard to beat because you can eat mechanically, which I did with my anorexia, when you you know, when you're in a clean eating phase you can treat yourself to some chocolate and you can kind of snap out of that or your body, my body will just crave unhealthy foods that I saw them as. Um, and purging, you can, with a purge, I could, I could stop eating spicy food, but the binge eating disorder was really, really tough. Really. That was the one that caused me a lot of stress. Um, so yeah, that, that's where I've been. I've been on a journey around about 40 I had a massive, massive revelation. I'd always been comfortable with my eating disorder. I'd always fought against it. I'd been really, really hard, fought against it, hence the moving from one to the other. So, you know, I realised I was anorexic, so I tried my hardest to get better, and I ate mechanically, but I didn't really address the issues that were lying underneath it. The control mechanisms, the coping mechanisms, the, the you know, the, 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 the why did I do what I did? Then I moved, obviously moving into purging and the binge and all that kind of stuff. I was just masking my emotions. So I managed to get some therapy through the eating disorder service in Lancashire. We're very, very lucky in Lancashire. We don't have the postcode lottery. It's a really, really good service. And they offered me something called CBTE, which is, for those who don't know, it's cognitive behavioral therapy, but specifically designed for um, eating disorders. And it's not CBT. CBT tends to work with... Um, helping you from this moment onwards you don't do a lot of reflection you do a little bit of a little bit of reflection but mainly helping you develop new strategies from this moment on whereas with cbte there's all sorts of different stuff there's compassion-based therapy there's all, all there's all sorts of stuff going on and it's all specifically designed to help people like me who've been ill for a long long time so as a result of my my therapy, I'm sorry if I'm boring you to death. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, as a result of my therapy, we went backwards. And my first 
illness. I've always had really bad body image. I have quite strong body dysmorphia, which I just can't be bothered tackling. I'm just, I'm, I've, I've had that much struggles going on. I can't be, can't be honest with fighting that. I just come to, have to come to peace with it. But my first, going back, and it wasn't like a regression thing, but I was 11 years old. I was a bit wayward. And I think this is where my ADHD comes in. ADHD didn't exist really when I was at school. You were just a knobhead. You were just a troublesome kid. Um, but you tend to exhibit risk-taking behaviours quite early in life. So I, I was started smoking and drinking when I was 11. Um, and what I, I used to take a pound a day for my lunch. And fags back then were incredibly cheap. It was 79p for 10 B and H. Wow. <laughs> so I could buy, I could buy 10 B and H with 10 Regal King size, a box of matches and a packet of polos to get rid of the smell for a quid. And my quid, my dad would give me a quid. And being brought up in a pub, it didn't, I always smelled smoke anyway, because people were smoking mm-hmm. pubs then. So the smell of smoke was never an issue. But I'd skip my lunch to buy fags. And Skipping my lunch gave me that, that empty feeling, that hungry feeling always felt really nice. So my, my patterns around food, are, it's, they've always been there. This is not something that I, I developed. They just become, they became destructive in my mid-twenties when my life, just I couldn't control my life anymore. It was spinning out of control. So yeah, there's, and like I said, it, it's, it's been a journey. The therapy, I'm, I'm now in recovery. Which is non-linear. Everybody thinks. I think people who aren't in recovery, because I, I genuinely used to laugh. I genuinely, genuinely used to laugh at people when they said I used to have an eating disorder. I used to, but you don't used to have eating disorders. I thought because it was so so interlinked and it defined who I was. I was Neil Proctor with an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. I wasn't Neil Proctor. It was Neil Proctor who had an eating disorder, and it was really, it was really interesting. And the the, the catalyst for me getting the therapy was I remember I've been out we, we were down in Maidenhead with me and my wife my second wife and we've been out for a couple of drinks I'd had a curry and the day after I was so poorly the the curry had a really adverse um, adverse effects on my digestive system and yeah I was sat on the toilet and I realized I realized I was ill <laughs> It wasn't a quirk of my personality. It wasn't me being a bit weird around food and body image. I was genuinely ill. And if I if I had, and this, please forgive me if this provokes a reaction in people, but if I had cancer, I'd be getting treatment. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And it, it, that was the kick up the arse. I was broken that day emotionally. I was just completely introverted it was such a painful realization but such a liberate liberating experience as well because I realized that I didn't need it anymore I didn't need this this eating disorder this this um toxic thing and don't get me wrong the eating disorder god knows what I'd have got into because I have a I have an interesting relationship with alcohol my dad was an alcoholic um so I could have become a massive alcoholic the risk-taking behaviors I had as a teenager, you know, I did all the milestones of smoking, drinking and becoming sexually active far too soon, far too early. I, I don't gamble, but God knows where I'd have gone or what would have happened to me if I hadn't had the eating disorders. The eating disorder was, a, in some, some ways, it was a good thing, which some people really may struggle with, but it really gave me something to hold on to. 
but there became a point in my life where I no longer needed it. And that was when I was, you know, 40. I still have moments and there's echoes of struggles going on, but I'm in recovery and it's absolutely amazing. That is lovely to hear. I think it's really interesting what you were just saying about kind of almost the eating disorder being a crutch in terms of, you know, you going into the eating disorder rather than all these other things. I think that it's quite an interesting concept. And like you say, it might be, might be difficult for some people to hear but I think it is it is is sometimes the case in that you know it it shifts your mindset away from other things I'm not saying that an eating disorder is better in the slightest um and I also just um I wanted to kind of when you were saying there about the you know you know if you had cancer then you you would be getting help and I've always seen it as um you know referring it to a broken leg if I break my leg nobody would kind of you know they would just leave me there but then if you've got a broken head let's say it's very different and and so when you first kind of like realized that you had an eating disorder do you think it was because you came from that quite masculine environment that you didn't kind of think you know you didn't think I've got an eating disorder how can that be possible or there are other factors as well Uh, I think it's both really I think coming from the um, coming from such an industrial background, you know, my family, I was the first person in my family to go to university. Mm-hmm. I was the first person in my family to have kids out of marriage. I was the first person in my family to, to become divorced, um, to become divorced, to get divorced. Um, so we were very, so there was that kind of approach. And look at my dad, my dad had massive issues. My nana had massive issues. So there's a, there's a big hereditary thing in eating disorder, mental health and mental wellness. But I also think it's a societal thing as well. I just think, I mean, this was 2003. So we're going back a while. It just wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. Obviously people knew in the medical profession, there was knowledge of it, but in, the, in society, people just didn't see it as being a thing. It was just a teenage girl seeking attention thing which is very dismissive, but that's how it felt, how it seemed to be. Kind of mentioned, you know, your, your dad and your grandma's problems and, and there was potential of the pathways you could have gone down, but do you think that it potentially had something to do with maybe in, like an addictive personality in terms of that's how the eating disorder kind of... <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I, have an ext- I don't have an addictive personality, I have an extreme personality, which turns out is part of the ADHD thing. Which I didn't really, and, uh, yeah, I kind of knew I had the AD. I knew I had ten- attention problems when I went through my therapy. And my therapist said, you should probably look into this. And I said, I just need a couple of years of being normal without a label before I go back and look at the ADHD thing. Um, and then, I, you know, I had a couple of years of being, I don't, I don't like the word normal because there's no such thing as normal. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, with no labels. Mm-hmm. Um but I think it's a massive, there is, I work with the, I do a lot of medical role play, which is where I work with student doctors and in a, in a learning situation. So they learn how to communicate. It's really, really rewarding. But I work with a doctor at UConn who was a geneticist who worked specifically with mental health. And he said, your mental health is, um, there's a tremendous amount of it is, is inherited and we know there's things like bipolar or schizophrenia which are quite obvious genetic markers 
but his specifics were in and around eating disorders. And he likened the, he, he described it really well for me. He said, imagine the old James Bond movies where you go into the baddies' lair and there's this atomic reactor with a million light switches on, these little tiny little diodes, that, you know, light emitting diodes. He said, imagine everybody has, and this is obviously, he's really dumbing it down for, for my purposes, but everybody has exactly the same genetics as a rule. And he said, there are regional variations like cystic fibrosis, for example, is a genetic that tends to be in in Western, Northern Western European people and not, not in others. It's a, a marker we've, we've kind of inherited or developed. But he said, essentially, all the, all, all the, all the genes are there. They're all, they're all there. And he said, some, some, are, some are switched off. So light bulb is off. And some are on at dim and some are on full. And that's your genetics. So one gene can be either off, dormant or active. And he said, if you if you come from a family where the, you can have somebody who's exposed to every single trigger of what would lead to an eating disorder, for example, you could have that you have that eating disorder genetic in you, and you can, as a child, you can be put through a very stressful family. You can be in and around people who've got really unhealthy relationships with food. You can be suffer from you know abuse, all that kind of stuff. But if that micro, that gene is switched off, no matter what external circumstances, that will never manifest. He said, sometimes, no matter what happens, if that gene is switched on, you can come from the most supportive environment. There can be no visible triggers towards an eating disorder, but it'll just manifest. And no matter what, you, what, what happens, that, how supportive that environment is and how few triggers there are, that will just manifest in somebody's life and they will struggle with it. And he said, and then you get the perfect storm. You get the one that's laying dormant, whereas if it's subjected to the, the correct environment and the correct na nature and nurture come together. That's when, and that's the one that fascinated him. So yeah, there's a, there's a huge genetic component to it. Um, but again, it's environmental as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to ask you as well, um, when you were kind of explaining your story that you said that binge eating disorder was the toughest to recover from. And you kind of said why the others were, slightly I don't want to say easier but in comparison um I just wondered if you had any ideas why the binge eating disorder it, it was it because you'd kind of transitioned from others and it was sort of maybe the last one I don't know it, it was the last one and it was the one I had the least the least awareness around mm. but it was the one that gave me the most coping mechanisms right because the not eating thing eventually you know I had to eat um, and the, you know, the clean eating fell off the wagon, all that kind of stuff. But the binge eating disorder was really, really useful as a coping mechanism. Um, I remember once I left the gym, I just decided to go back to acting, just step off, be brave, go back and just call it a day, because I hated it in the gym towards the end. It was, it was taken over by a different company. I didn't like the way it was going, and it run its course. I took an off, a job in an office. Somebody said to me, we need somebody just to come in and do very basic, you know, very basic work. We'll pay you national minimum wage. You can do your hours, whatever hours you want. It was a perfect job for an actor, really. Very simple. They really needed me. Um, it was ticked all the boxes. Went in on my first day <laughs> and I thought, I don't like being in an office environment. It's not good. My brain isn't structured to be in that environment necessarily. 
I wasn't, I was, a, I was very good at being a welder and sheet metal worker, but the environment wasn't good for me because it turns out because my ADHD. So rhythm and routine aren't necessarily, me. rhythm and routine and me are very uneasy bedfellows. I went into this office and I had a reasonable office to tell you, you know, I had a shirt and trousers on. Um, and then straight, the manager just came over and went, I'd never met him before, we were ties, and then walked off. And I thought, this ain't for me. Fuck this. Anyway, sat down. We were in this environment. It was really busy, obviously pre-COVID. Nobody spoke. They all had the little cliques. Was I'm normally really friendly. I'm, I'm the person for somebody new in the environment. I'll go and make them feel welcome. Nobody spoke to me. It was just horrid. So it, this was at one side of Preston. I live about a mile away from Preston Centre. And this was about half a mile the other way. So... It went from being, you know, the perfect job just to bring a little bit of money in instead of working in bars or doing the traditional empty kind of stuff. And I thought it went from being the, the the answer to my prayers to being just an absolute nightmare. It was awful. I hated it. I felt like a fish out. It just, I just didn't fit. And what I did, I walked. Out, my, my wife, Anthony, said to me, I'll pick you up at 4.30. And I went, no. I'm gonna I'm don't she 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 was busy, so she couldn't come and pick me up. So I walked, I walked to Aldi. This might be a bit triggering for people, but bear with me. It gives you an idea of how I how I used binge eating disorder. I walked to Aldi, which was on the way home. I was inside, I was in so much turmoil because this had gone from being I'd gone from having something to bring me an income. Um I had a month when I left the gym to find an acting work before I had to get a proper job and go back, step off. And this was this was the answer to it. So I'd gone from having that security to nothing. And I was just terrified. I was absolutely, the, in, the feeling in, inside was undescribable. And I, I, I marched, literally walked a very brisk pace to Aldi, got this massive amount of food, went home. Anthony went, you okay, beautiful man? Which is what she refers to me rather kindly as. And I went, I'm not, I, I can't talk. And I could not get that food and that alcohol and that chocolate in my mouth fast enough. But I think, I think as a, I know you should never go down gender specifics, but in my experience, men tend to not deal with emotions very well. I definitely don't deal with emotions very well. And that was the way that binge eating disorder worked for me. And that 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 was an example of why it was hard to beat because I was, you know, I was having problems seeing my kids. My kids were, you know, I had to go to court. I had to represent myself because I couldn't get legal aid. I had all sorts of accusations thrown at me. I was sad because I'd worked on worked so hard towards an acting career I always felt like a failure when I wasn't working in the acting industry working in the gym every day I felt like I was further and further away from you know something I'd sacrificed so much for so at weekends I'd be okay then at weekends this unhappiness I would control it with the binging and that's why it was hard to beat but the other side is it's not unusual for people to sit down at weekend and have a bag of Doritos or a pizza or a takeaway so there's this reward element that we're encouraged to really look at through adverts, through social things. So you've got this, and what was what was interesting through my therapy was to make a draw a line between the differentiate between a binge and an indulgence. A binge is where you're out of control, like the pizza crisp thing. I was out of control and most weekends I would be out of control. But towards the end of my therapy, I wasn't out of control. I was doing it out of habit. So I'd have a massive pizza and halfway through the pizza, I'd be going, 
I don't really want this, but this is what I do. And my therapist really helped me differentiate between, well, is it a binge? <laughs> well, yeah, because I'm eating a full pizza and a bag of crisps. Did you enjoy it? No, but I never enjoyed a binge anyway. Did you feel like you could stop at any time? Yeah, I got about halfway through the pizza. I thought, I don't want to eat this anymore, but I don't know what to do with the rest of it. She will just have half a pizza. <laughs> Boom, mind blown. <laughs> what? I have control over this. <laughs> oh, my God. Shit yeah. the bed. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have control. There are times when I get a little bit bingy, um, but ultimately I have the power to stop it, which is nice. Yeah. I think it's really interesting what you were saying there about, um, but I think that's such a good stigma to sort of demystify it, you know, with eating disorders, you were saying how a lot of things kind of in your life weren't going right. Um, and you kind of went into this new job thinking this is going to be the answer and then it's not and it's almost I kind of have had a similar experience where I've gone into jobs and I've been like this is the answer and like this is this is going to be me and this is what I want to do and it, it's almost like you're just shifting your identity into something else from the eating disorder to you know this new role or that's what it felt like for me um, and then when it doesn't work out you're like okay well I'll just go back to square one because that's what I know like you know unfortunately that is what does work for me um and also that really really good distinction there that you made between a binge and an indulgence I think that's one thing that people really I think people with an eating disorder people without really struggle to understand is that you know you can eat a large amount of food and there's now this thing in society where we're like oh we're binged at the weekend and actually you didn't, you had a, a larger amount of food than you normally would, but you were with friends or you were having a nice time. And, and that was sort of the social occasion compared to, like you said, that out of control feeling and not being able to stop and sort of using that as a coping mechanism for, for what's going on in life. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because it's really interesting because we live in a world where we live in a society where you, you were defined by external things. Mm. You know, nice car, nice house, nice partner, beautiful kids, whatever whatever that may be, we have a definition of success and happiness. I'm a Buddhist, which everybody goes, really? You, Buddhists are calm and nice. I'm like, no, this person's fucking bonkers. Um, <laughs> but we have, there's a theory, it's a Japanese theory, and it's a word called Honzen. And Honzen translates to basically object of devotion. And what we, what we tend to do, we tend to make Honzens out of careers. or And this is something you devote your, not your life to, but your emotions. You know, you, you kind of get attached to it. Um, and what we do, we tend to put, uh, make our careers our Honzen. And I've done that definitely with my acting career. I've worked really hard to get absolutely nowhere. Um, and I've literally put years of procrastination into things. But my, my kids were my Honzen. You know, my eating disorder was massively, I put so much devotion to my eating disorder. But what we should really be doing is making ourselves our Honzen. If we could devote our lives to making ourselves happy, and I don't mean the happy, oh, look, I've just won 20 pounds on a scratch card. Having an unsensible, unshakable sense of self, then, and embracing who we are, we would never, we'd be a lot more confident and have a lot more ability to deal because life is hard. You know, we don't, we live in a world, we get ill, we get old, we have problems, you lose your job. The, the pandemic really showed yeah. the fragility of our societal structures. 
But if we had that unshakable sense of self, which I'm working on having, I don't have by any joke at the moment, imagine how much nicer we'd be to each other, how our coping mechanisms could be healthy. <laughs> I think it's um, it's a really important to talk about. I think identity, you know, in eating disorders are often warped up, which, you know, that's like you said earlier, that's what makes it so difficult to recover because you dedicate your life to the eating disorder and then all of a sudden you're asked you can't do that anymore um you need to move away so it is you know I think that is one of the trickiest things about it I think think having ADHD because I've had a recent diagnosis Mm -hmm. I had a preliminary diagnosis about six months ago I was very lucky I've had a a consultant sat down and asked me a lot of questions I have I have moderate ADHD it's always been there I, I just didn't know that my brain was different to everybody else's. Um, there's a, if you've got ADHD, there's a, you are four times more likely to struggle with eating disorders than people who don't have eating, don't have ADHD. Because weirdly you crave structure, but you absolutely hate it. <laughs> You're impulsive. You have things like emotional dysregulation where you can either struggle expressing emotions or be what people perceive as being overly emotional. You have um, rejection sensitivity dysphoria, which makes you hypersensitive to things. Again, that can go two ways. You can either become cold and distant or you can become very people-pleasing. Um, you, it, it all stems, it's such a complicated thing. It's probably ADHD is probably more of a collection of, of symptoms than an actual one thing but you're more likely to have you're eight times more likely to have binge eating disorder than somebody who doesn't have ADHD Wow! and I think that's why one of the reasons it was so hard for me to to get over my eating disorder is because we people with ADHD I don't like the term ADHDs this is a big buzzword at the moment and there's a lot of diagnosis if you a lot of people with Neurodiversity is something we're really looking into. We're really starting to understand neurodiversity, neurodivergence at the moment. It used to just be ADHD and autistic, whereas now we've got ASD, autistic spectrum disorder. I would argue it's not necessarily disorder. It's just a thing. And then we've got ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and again i wouldn't necessarily say it's a disorder it's just a thing up to eight percent of the population in anywhere in the world have got it so it's just a thing um but we we crave dopamine we don't regulate dopamine very well so hence the risk-taking behaviors kids hence the in my case the eating disorders um you know it's that we do things that will stimulate dopamine release somebody who isn't adhd can watch a nice film spend a bit of time doing something enjoying that dopamine will be released over a longer period of time whereas ours doesn't work like that it's a very short push and then it it disappears so we keep going we keep going and looking for these external stimulus and a lot of the time i use that um that was where my eating disorder would manifest because when I was restricting, for example, I would work on an hour-to-hour basis. So if I could avoid food for an hour, I felt a tremendous amount of success. Yes, done it. If I could do it another hour, if I could get to, say, five o'clock without eating anything, 
boom, massive reward, ADHD, dopamine release. And that would then turn into days or how small could I make my food portion? And looking back at it, that's where my ADHD worked quite strongly alongside my eating disorders. So yeah, that's that's one of my experiences of ADHD. And also there's the the, the binge. Because I like people ask me what's 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 my ADHD like? You know, I'm not extreme, so I'm not bouncing all over the show. Um However, and I've learned a lot of strategies because I was a bit crazy as a kid, but I had a very heavy-handed upbringing, so I got battered a lot. And that kind of teaches you to behave because you have this fear element of, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to get caught. And after doing something four or five times and getting a right battering, then you think twice. And then my apprenticeship, you know, my apprenticeship, it was an old-fashioned apprenticeship, so the tradesman would give me a, give me a dig if I stepped out of line. So I, I learned quite quickly some strategies. However, it comes out in fits and starts. But with the food, the, the binging, because there would always be alcohol involved, that would slow down the noise in my head. I liken it to having 67 TVs <laughs> going on all at the same time. You know when you see the, the, the multiple mm. TV screens? It's like that. They're all at the same volume. There's, there's all sorts of weird, crazy shit going on. There's German porn. There's motor car racing. I don't care for either of those. There's children's BBC. There's the news channel. There's Boris Johnson talking in Parliament. There's all this different, random stuff going on. And I really struggle to focus, to tune into one TV channel because it's all noisy. It's all doing. Whereas the, the, the binging and the alcohol... And binging mainly would help just quieten that noise down, even if it was just for an evening. But then I'm back into that cycle of shame where the morning after I wake up, after eating so much and feel disgusting and feel different. You know, that kind of yeah. perpetuation of the cycle of self-loathing. It's almost like a short-term relief, long-term. It just makes the situation even yeah. worse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It just continues it because then you start to, you know, we don't need to go everywhere. Yeah. I'm sure so many people can identify with that pattern of self-loathing after something like a binge or a restrictive phase or over-exercising. Yeah. Other things that you do that you found useful sort of during your recovery that, you know, give you a similar feeling that the restrictive patterns or the binging did, but are actually kind of better coping mechanisms? Um, yeah, I, I go to the gym a lot. I enjoy the gym. I hate cardio. Cardio is good for your heart and it's bad for your soul. So I do a lot of <laughs> resistance training. Um, that that's that. They found that studies are showing that people who have ADHD can do exercise that induces a lot of lactic acid. It can be a bit of an internal medicine. Mm. That kind of dampens the noise down a little bit and the impulsiveness or the rejection sensitivity, whatever, whatever. There's so many different things going on with ADHD people. Um, so there's the gym I play football um, one to two times a week again you can see these are quite high high, stimulate, mm -hmm. high stimulating things and what's nice is now I'm in recovery I used to if I didn't go to the gym and I was very good at telling people in the when I worked for um, when I worked in the gym not on not, on, not mentioning the name of the gym that let's set ourselves a realistic target of three visits because in January 
which is very really triggering for people. January can be really triggering for people like us. I would say people come in and say, I'm going to do five, you know, I'm going to come to the gym five times five times a week. And I'd say, well, you set yourself up for fail, to fail. And if you set yourself up to fail, you then get catastrophic thinking. And, you know, let's, let's think about this. You go, you catastrophic thinking, then you'll, well, sod it, I'm going to have a load of cake and I'm not going to go to the gym next week because I've ruined it. So what I would then say is let's let's give a give a reasonable target, two to three times a week. If you come to the gym two to three times a week, you aim at two, you get three, brilliant. If you aim at two, you only manage one. It's not catastrophic. Whereas me, I would be five or six times a week. That was my target. And if I didn't get one, the wheels would come off quite spectacularly. Whereas now I can just, if I don't, I'll sometimes just consciously, if I feel myself becoming a little bit attached to the gym, I'll just not go. It's nice. And I get the reward from having that confidence to have that, you know, that just to go, I'm not going. I'm getting a little bit um, clingy. <laughs> Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff. Like I say, I play a lot of football. I have a theatre company, um, which we're developing a play. We've developed a play about eating disorders in men, but we've had to shelve it till the whole COVID things slowed down. So yeah, there's lots of stuff. Yeah. I think it's it's interesting kind of during the recovery process to find things that give you that sort of reward again, if, if that's what you want to call it. Um that's positive but isn't mm. um all consuming so uh, the reason i say that is recently like with my therapist i've been working through um trying to be in a shade of gray so i um i don't think necessarily um i'm struggling with eating disorder anymore but very much with depression um and so, you know, everyone always says, yeah, you know, if you're depressed, you need to get out, you need to do some exercise, you need to socialize. So you need to try new things. So my brain was like, okay, I'm going to go out every evening after work and socialize. I'm going to go to the gym every day. I've got like four new hobbies that I've tried. I'm very much like that all or nothing. Um, and, but then I'm knackered. And if I don't have something on in the evening, I'm like, well, I'm going to have to sit in that sad, lonely place now. I can't possibly just be happy in the, the comfort of, you know, just being on my own. So it's, it's a really interesting shift, I think, um, making sure that you don't kind of go from one thing and like all encompassing to then going into another. It's sort of, you know, like you said, having um, that almost sense of, oh, I'm not going to go to the gym and that's okay. Um, and getting a reward from that. I think that's a, that's a really good thing to highlight in that you can actually, just because that's something that you're doing to make yourself feel better. It doesn't have to be the thing that you do every time. Mm, yeah. And it's funny because I, I don't know, I think you talked about, Maybe, and yeah, I don't know if you talked about this, we were talking about this before, or whether it was while you were recording, but about having an addictive personality mm-hmm. or an extreme personality. I think people, definitely with ADHD, there's a degree of extreme personality thing going on. A lot of people mask it. It manifests very differently in women to how it does in men. Men tend to outwardly display symptoms, whereas um, women, females, girls, manifests internally there's a lot of internal stuff I think that's more of a societal thing because it's okay for boys to express themselves we still very much live in a man's world mm. um, which we, one day it'll change um, but I find but, that so interesting because we live in a man's world but then in eating disorders it's the other way around 
<laughs> having this conversation with a friend the other day. Yeah. It's a yeah. it's a really odd, like, you know, you think that we live in a man 12, but then in eating disorders, the minority are men. So it's really Yeah. Yeah. Well this this is interesting. It's interesting you brought that up because because I'm because I'm an actor, there's this assumption. I was a welder and I'm not the rough, tough, masculine type. I play football, but, you know, I'm not somebody who's clattering into people. I just enjoy running around. I've never been a fighter. Um, my accent probably makes me sound like I'm, I'm a northern football hooligan, but I'm not. I just, sound, I just sound like it. I also sound like the sort of person who would be inherently racist and bigoted. I'm not. I'm not that kind of person at all. It's just my accent makes me, makes me sound like that. But there's this... There was always this kind of misconception that I'm gay because I'm an actor and the eating disorder really reinforces that approach that I'm either either overly effeminate or I'm gay because it's a girl thing to do <laughs> and it's just utter shite and what's happened is what's really good the journey of eating disorders for men there's in the, ex, the, the people who have come out publicly and I'm really grateful for the way it's happened. The first person I remember was John Prescott. John Prescott, for people who don't know, was the Deputy Prime Minister uh, under New Labour. He was a lad from Hull. He worked his way up from the ships. He worked in the Merchant Navy. He was a big union man in the Merchant Navy, got into the unions, worked up through the unions, became an MP and became, you know, part of the, the cabinet. But he made mistakes. He was a typical northern working class lad. You know, he'd say the wrong thing. He'd get his the word the, the, the wrong word in the sentence. He's a politician that punched somebody. You know, there's a politician where somebody throws an egg and he turns on and biffs him. Sorry for mansplaining. Anyway, he came out as bulimic and everybody went, oh, stupid. He's really fat. <laughs> and he's northern and he's a man and he's a former boxer. And he said, no, what I've done, I, I used to go and make myself sick. And everybody laughed at him. It was a really, really unpleasant way to deal with it. And this was probably mid to, mid to late 2000s. I'm not very good with date. I have a lasted time because I'm an ADHD. And then reasonably recently, Christopher Eccleston came out as having anorexia. And everybody went, wow, how brave. Then there was a pause. But he is one of those creatives. You know, that's what they're like. <laughs> and that was, again... They were almost, is the word emasculated him? Because he's a creative. The first person who came out, he can't possibly have an eating disorder. He's a rough, tough northerner. What a load of shite. Second person who comes out publicly, you know, in my experience, the ones I really remember, was this, you know, northern working class actor, but he's a creative. That's what they're like. I was like, okay. But I was really, really grateful for him coming out. And then Freddie Flintoff, Preston's, I'm not from Preston, I'm from Blackburn, Preston's favourite son. He came out, he did a documentary, which I had a little bit of an involvement in, in how it, it, it was steered. Um, and you can't take anything away from Freddie Flintoff. You know, he's a, he's a top-class athlete, he's been the top of the tree, he's an aggressive, he's an aggressive cricketer. He went, you know, they won the Ashes, he went to Downing Street, pissed out his underpants. You see him on Top Gear, he's a lad. He's not a sexist and misogynist, but he's a lad. Mm -hmm. And nobody could say anything. They couldn't go, oh, well, 
you know, he's a creative or, oh, he's a big, you know, he's a big, strong northerner. What a lot of bollocks. It was genuinely everybody had to go, okay, well, this might be a real thing that affects, just affects men, not effeminate men, not gay men, not people who are attention seeking. It just, if Freddie Flintoff can have it, anybody can have it. And that was really liberating for me. And I think every, every man who's campaigning for eating disorders and not campaigning, but raising awareness kind of have, we all had a collective sigh of relief that somebody like Freddie Flintoff could really be so brave in his documentary and show the world what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important that, you know, when people are ready, they do share their experience because like you said, I can imagine a lot of people um, will have been very shocked by Freddie Flintoff saying that he had an eating disorder. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> You know, when you were saying about Christopher Eccleston, and I can't remember the gentleman that you mentioned first, but I think you said that he was maybe of a larger size, and I think that potentially probably played into it as well, you know, the different body shapes. Um, Oh, I can't possibly have an eating disorder. Um, But the more that we talk about these kind of things, and, you know, there's no particular image that an eating disorder has at all, or gender, or sexuality, or whatever, or race, ethnicity. because I think that's one thing I made a mistake of when I first started this podcast was to be like, oh, um, you know, this is how an eating disorder, like this is a sign to look out for in a man. And actually so narrow minded because, you know, there might be certain traits that are more common, but it doesn't mean that every person's experience is like that. Um so yeah, I think super important to kind of share everybody's experience and how unique yeah. they are. I couldn't agree more. And I, I don't like the word fat. I, I, through therapy, was actively discouraged to remove that word from my vocabulary. So when I say about John Prescott being fat, I'm saying that was the words that we used to describe him. Mm-hmm. I'm not for one moment body shaming him because it's, it's horrible when that happens. But yeah, I think it is. I'm, I'm very vocal about eating disorders because, God, I'm full of cliches. But I think if we talk about it, we normalise it. And if we normalise it, we destigmatize it. And it, it's so incredibly important because when I worked in the gym, for example, I always had a leaflet from the local eating disorder charity. And I was very, very open, very, very vocal about my eating disorder because I saw it as an opportunity to help people get better. So people would come and approach me. And when I worked in the gym, um, it, we had a policy in place an unofficial policy if people were exercising unhealthily if they were coming in too often rapid weight loss but there was just an unhealthy aspect we'd sit down with them and ask that we, we would put the membership on hold and ask the doctor to give them a note saying that we could um you know are they fit to exercise and because of my eating disorders i was the person who'd sit down and i'd say look i'm not judging you i have an eating disorder and i'm just saying we've noticed that you're coming in you know twice a day four times a week and you've lost a heck of a lot of weight, is everything okay? And then we'd have a conversation around food. But yeah, I, I think it's really important that we talk. Because if we don't talk, it stays a dark, dark, yeah. dirt, a dark dirty secret. Yeah. And it's not. It's just who we are. No. You know, like you said about your depression, nobody tells you to, you know, it's just, we're just, we're complex beings. Mm. We have things that we struggle with. It just happens to be eating yeah. disorders in people like me. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, you know, um, when you said, you know, like I mentioned the depression, that's taken me so long to actually 
have the courage to say those words and even now to say it I'm still like practicing I just kind of like say it and I'm like uh that feels weird and horrible but it you know it's what's going on um whereas I was, I was saying this on a podcast the other day you know I am so open about the fact that I've had an eating disorder and I have been I can say I've had an eating disorder it's the easiest thing for me to say it's like saying my name but mm. it's it I I often have to kind of take a step back and be like that's because you practice that a lot you talk about this all the time um whereas you know I can completely appreciate that for a lot of people to say those words you know is a really difficult thing and actually I think it's been a bit of a a nice sort of reminder to myself with what's been happening lately that you know saying certain words is is difficult um so actually kind of reminding myself you know that people do need support with that and that's why I you know started this so that our Mm. conversation here you know you've been wonderfully open um in sharing your story and I can imagine you know a lot of people listening will be really grateful to hear your story you know especially coming from your back like your particular background in an environment maybe it's not as easy to share things like this um, <laughs> mm, I don't know ADHD <laughs> one of the problems with ADHD is oversharing <laughs> ah, okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> but no it is and I think what would happen before the eating disorders and before the confidence I would bottle it up whereas now I'm just I just embrace that and I think yeah. I genuinely think if I if I can I always I always work there's a Jewish saying something along the lines of if you touch one person you touch the world entire I've completely bastardized that phrase However, I genuinely think if I can help one person, I've made a difference in, in my life. And yeah. that, that, that's why I do it. And that's why, I'm, you know, why I, I, I think it's important that we talk about things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to close us there. But that was absolutely wonderful to speak to. I'm so glad you finally got around to doing it because I've really, really enjoyed chatting with you and listening to your story. So, yeah, thank you so much. No, thank you so much. And it has. It's been a challenge getting together. (laughs) Even even halfway through the meeting, we had the problem of speaking (laughs) is invalid. (laughs) The the, the Zoom doom. But, no, thank you for having me on. It's been wonderful. Um, I've I've really, really enjoyed. Well, I've just talked a lot. But yeah. thank you for having me on. It's really nice. I hope, I hope it, it's been helpful for you. And thank you for being so brave about your depression as well, because it's, it's huge, isn't it? I admit mm-hmm. it's something like that. It's huge. So thank you for being yeah. so brave. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say as well, I know we didn't actually get around to speaking about it, but you'd mentioned your play um, in, mm. in kind of the midst of the conversation. And I just wanted to sort of say, you know, if, if people have enjoyed listening to you and want to get in contact with you or they're interested in the play, is there a place they can go to kind of find out more? Yeah, my theatre company is called Lancashire People's Theatre. Um, there's information there. We've shelved the play at the moment because it's because of the nature of the intimacy of the actors. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, we, we, we're going to resurrect it. We only work in Lancashire because of Lancashire. in Lancashire it's very hard to work as a creative because of the... Mm-hmm goes out to Manchester or down to Liverpool. Yeah, that was a, that's a, there's a podcast in that. But yeah, if you just search Lancashire People's Theatre um, on a, any of the social media platforms, you'll get some information. There isn't much about the play because it's not, it's never mm-hmm. been performed. We've had a scratch night, um, but nothing of the, the actual physical play that we've got. Okay, well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's yeah. been lovely. And thank I'll you, thank speak you so to you much. Soon.
<laughs> yeah. I hope it's been helpful. <laughs> it has. <laughs> See you later. Bye. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.